The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. A long time ago, I sent Marvel Comics a pitch for a series of books called Web Spinners, Spider-Man Through the Decades. Clearly inspired by the then-current in-the trades from DC Comics, Superman in the 40s, Batman in the 50s, that kind of thing, I felt that if anyone deserved this treatment, it was the amazing Spider-Man. Why? Well, for the most part... Unlike Superman or Batman, Spider-Man and his alter ego Peter Parker had mostly stayed within the same framework and continuity throughout his existence. Sure, there were contradictions and mistakes, but overall it was the story of one guy's rather extraordinary life. Now obviously this was before Brand New Day, when all this was rendered somewhat moot, but even with Brand New Day in the numerous volumes of the core title, The Amazing Spider-Man, numerous satellite titles like Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man, some more of Spider-Man's greatest mistakes, and Jesus, not another Spider-Man comic, etc, etc, this still holds moderately true. These would have been a handsome set of hardcovers, aimed at a casual and newer reader, and would have featured the cream of the crop and the most important Spider-Man stories ever written. And some that, you know, just have major historical events in them. There would have been essays, text pieces, background details on the social landscape of the time. You know, all that good stuff. Suffice to say, Marvel did not take me up on the idea, and I probably forgot about it. However, a Facebook post a while ago by Aaron Hendley got me thinking about it. Given my druthers, what stories would I include? Especially given the fact that Spider-Man is now far more convoluted than he was a mere 20 years ago. He's been married, then not married. In fact, history was altered so that he's never been married. He's devolved, de-aged and been deceased. There are multiple versions of him from different timelines and realities. He's more popular than ever thanks to the Marvel movies but still seems to be the underdog. The comics have had many peaks and troughs in the past two decades. What would that mean to any ranking? It helps that the starting point is easy. The 1960s are Spider-Man's best decade. It's not even a conversation. He had one comic, one writer, mostly, and one core value. To never allow, through his own inaction, another death that he could have prevented. It's also the easiest in that there was only one Spider-Man comic published in the 1960s, The Amazing Spider-Man, and only 82 issues of that title, along with six annuals and various guest shots in some other comics. Mostly, all the stories were scripted by Stan Lee, Spider-Man's co-creator, and plotted and drawn by a variety of artists, but mostly Steve Ditko, Spider-Man's other co-creator, and John Romita, Spider-Man's stepfather. My cut-off date is December 1969, and the issue that came out that month, according to the official index to the Marvel Universe, was Amazing Spider-Man issue 82. By cover date, it would be issue 79. 
But these issues, despite being cover dated 1970, would have been available to the reading public in 1969. Annual 6 was a reprint and thus is ineligible. My manner, my rules. Unless I choose to break them. The goal of this project is to approach it as professionally as possible. Good, high-quality stories that showcase who Spider-Man or his core-supporting cast and rogues gallery are. Important events will be only included if they are also a great story. I will be ruthless. I would love this to be a somewhat definitive list of great Spider-Man stories, but I also have to allow for personal bias and preference. Nostalgia, therefore, does play a part, although I will try not to include stories purely from a nostalgic viewpoint. I will also try and limit the number to 10 issues slash stories per decade. What this will mean when it comes to Craven's Last Hunt, the death of Gene DeWolf, Spider-Man Blue or Spider-Man Life Stories is a bridge I will be thrown off when I get to it. First up, Amazing Fantasy 15. A compilation such as this one would need to include the origin. I don't care that you've read it a thousand times. It's important. It's also one of the finest motivations for a superhero in comics. Superman has no say in being rocketed from Krypton. Bruce Wayne's parents were taken from him. Peter Parker inadvertently caused the death of the man who was like a father to him. No wonder he's driven by guilt. It's also a great demonstration of just how well thought out Spider-Man was from the get-go. More than any other character in the Marvel Age of Comics, Spider-Man arrived almost fully formed, with at least a small measure of thought put into the character and the world he inhabited. Now, granted, Lee and Ditko were still making it up as they went along, but there's a cohesiveness to early Spider-Man strips that the Fantastic Four and the Hulk both lack. Peter Parker is the main character from the beginning, and he's fascinating. He's not always likeable. He doesn't make the best decisions. He has typical teenage angst. He's arrogant, occasionally conflicted. In short, a proper character. The hero that could be you. The thing that makes this story work, the characters, the drama, the writing, and in comics, the art, are all still resonant, despite the story's age. Ditko's odd-looking people are a stark contrast to the squirrel heroes of other superhero comics of the time. They were normal. No Hollywood superstars in a Ditko-drawn comic. Even compared to Marvel superstar Jack Kirby, Ditko's characters look like real people. If this were a TV show, it would have been filmed in Canada instead of been populated by LA mannequins. It's true that Amazing Fantasy XV is a tad rough around the edges, and it's thematically darker than perhaps you remember it, but it does to make you feel. It has heart. It's a dark heart, but it beats and pulses nevertheless. It holds up on an emotional level. It works as a short story, and it could so easily have been a one-off. But the world is richly populated, so it practically screamed out for further adventures. Supporting characters are present and correct. Powers and abilities clearly defined, despite the lack of a spider sense. The webs are artificial, presumably because Leo Ditko didn't want Peter shitting webs out of his arse. It's a sad tale, with none of the fun or joie de vivre of other superhero comics of the time. I doubt even in their wildest dreams that Lee and Ditko could have imagined what they had created. It deserves its place at the top of the book. Amazing Spider-Man number four. 
Does it seem odd to you that the first major villain I've selected is the Sandman? He's hardly the most innovative or interesting of the early Lee Ditko villains. He's a man made of sand. But Amazing Spider-Man issue 4 is the final piece of the puzzle. Prior to this, Lee and Ditko were finding their feet with stock tails of alien invaders and space shuttles. In Nothing Can Stop the Sandman, Lee and Ditko take what worked in the previous three issues, discard what didn't, and create the Spider-Man alchemy that will serve them in good stead for the rest of their run. With this issue, The Amazing Spider-Man fulfills its potential. Lee and Ditko have successfully distilled the formula of what would make Spider-Man different. Whilst Peter, working at a newspaper, was evocative of Superman, and the alien invasion stuff was familiar territory, with this issue the creative team hit upon the essence of a great Spider-Man story of this time. There's a visually impressive and challenging villain who can give Ditko plenty to work with. The plot mostly holds up, and for the first time the blend of secret identity shenanigans, the high school milieu, the superheroics, and his part-time gig at the Daily Bugle work perfectly. It even tells a story. The ending is quintessentially Spider-Man, even if it's not quite as successful as later variations on this theme. But mostly this is included because with issue 4, the amazing Spider-Man knew what it was and what it wanted to be. But more importantly, it knew what it wasn't. It's the first truly classic issue. Amazing Spider-Man number 9 would be the third story in the book. An interesting piece of trivia about this story. It was the first issue of Spider-Man Comics Weekly, Marvel UK's second major release following the success of Mighty World of Marvel. It's a good choice, as it's an absolutely magnificent issue, and a strong candidate for one of the best of the early years. Everything works about this story, the villain, the characterisation, the drama, and the action. Interestingly, and counter to today's comic book villains, there's no thematic link between Electro and Peter Parker. He was simply the bad guy. That was it. No other motivation was needed. He wasn't misunderstood, nor was he born of tragedy. He was a normal guy who got powers by a fluke and decided to cash in. What's unrelatable about that? In fact, it kind of reminds us of Spider-Man. As usual, the Spider-Man stuff is happening whilst Peter has all this other stuff going on in his life. This juxtaposition between Peter and Spider-Man was core to the success of the strip before writers started forgetting that this was important, and it works exceptionally well here. There's some great steps forward in Peter's relationship with his girlfriend Betty Brant, arguably the most mature of Lee's romances in these early comics, and the action, when it happens, is up to Ditko's usual standards. A belter, and no mistake. Amazing Spider-Man issue 11. By the time this issue rolled around, Spider-Man was now, more than ever, a crime noir strip. Gambling problems, shyster lawyers, jailbreaks, blackmail, events being more complicated than they may first appear. All these elements are classics of the crime genre, and dragging Betty into this gives us somebody to care for as the story develops. A story concerning a man, Betty's brother Bennett, who simply gets in over his head due to his gambling debts. What a subtle way of weaving a morality fable into the story for kids to learn without banging them over the head with it. There's no, and now you know, moment here. Just really great writing and characterization. This may be an odd choice in many respects. It isn't the first appearance of Dr. Octopus, rather his return bout with our wall-crawling hero. 
it isn't even a standard issue, rather quite off-concept. But if you can be off-concept in a series less than 12 issues in, now that's quite a remarkable thing to be. Structurally, though, this story is different to other Spider-Man stories of this vintage. There are no high school scenes, no introductory battle that Spider-Man loses, no moment where Spider-Man uses his brains to get out of a scrape. Our hero is well over his head here, and in a way that feels genuine and real. Doc Ock is out for revenge, and there are armed thugs aplenty, all hankering to put some new holes in our hero. It's all he can do to stay alive and one step ahead. Ditko manages to get some great moments out of the fight scenes, hampering Spidey with a sore ankle. However, Spidey's cockiness is present and correct, and his grandstanding when tackling the lone shark, Blackie Gaxton, sees a stray bullet hit Bennett Brandt, killing him as he tries to protect his sister Betty. It's one of the truly iconic early moments in Spider-Man history. Betty blames Spider-Man, pounding on his chest, crying with impotent rage as Gaxton and Ock flee. It's a poignant moment, but it isn't really Spider-Man's fault. Not in the way Uncle Ben's death was. But Betty taking it out on him is a wonderfully human reaction. These are probably the highest stakes in a Spider-Man story thus far, and it feels like it. This story feels dangerous. Ock is a relentless foe in this story, pounding on our hero, giving him no room to manoeuvre or breathe. This is Ock at his very best, not the chubby loser of later stories, but an unwavering and implacable foe, every bit our hero's equal. The story closes in melancholy fashion, with another iconic Ditko panel of Peter walking the nighttime streets of New York alone, with the shadow of Spider-Man lurking above him. A remarkably mature and assured issue. Eleven issues in, The Amazing Spider-Man has gone from being good to great to being the best comic available to 1964's reader base. Next, annual number one. To be honest, there is nothing really novel about the story The Sinister Six, but it is executed so well and delivers so much that the reader forgives this simply because it's a stupendous romp. I know I do. It's a continuity nightmare if one thinks about it too much, but Lee is clearly having fun sending this up as much as he can, and Ditko likewise seems to be revelling in being allowed to simply plot a paper-thin story that allows him to go wild with the art. Basically, the plot sees all of Spider-Man's main adversaries to this point, Electro, Sandman, Craven, the Vulture, Mysterio, and their leader, Dr. Octopus, team up to take Spider-Man down. They fail, but it's 40 pages of wonderful failure, with more cameos than Cannonball Run. It's not deep, but it's a ripping yarn. Amazing Spider-Man 24, Spider-Man Goes Mad. This issue is both a villain returning for a second bout story, and a chance for sturdy Steve Ditko to indulge in his penchant for drawing sweaty panic. Unlike other The Villain Returns for a Rematch stories, which often just replay the same beats, Ditko and Lee go for a completely different tack here, with Mysterio never even appearing as himself in the issue. Rather, he appears as Dr. Reinhardt, and he successfully convinces our hero he's going ever so slightly mad. This is a brilliant issue, showcasing how innovative the strip could be. 
Yes, there's a ton of moments where characters just bump into each other to keep the plot going, but so what? This is a fast-paced and hugely entertaining romp that again showcases the Lee Ditko team at the top of their game. Ditko's plot and art are sublime, and Lee rises to the occasion with a superb script that masterfully walks the difficult tightrope between comedy, drama, farce, and heroic fiction. It's hugely underrated, yet a magnificent issue. Amazing Spider-Man issue 33, however, is a no-brainer. It has to be in any collection of best of or favourite Spider-Man stories. This issue has been mined, mimicked, homaged and flat-out stolen for over 50 years. It has one of the most well-known and dramatically executed sequence of art to ever appear in the comics medium. Spider-Man is trapped under heavy weights as water pours in around him. He will either be crushed or drown. He's all but given in to despair. The weight he carries too heavy for his teenage frame to handle. The problems he faces insurmountable as more and more is placed before him, as if testing his resolve. And that's just the subtext. As he strains and struggles against his burden, the faces of May and Ben Parker flash before his eyes. And Spider-Man makes the ultimate decision. To not give up. He strains and flexes with every fibre of his being, slowly, inch by inch, gaining purchase, moving himself into the position where he will be able to use his leverage to push the weight off his back. Stanley's dialogue is a tad overwrought by today's standards and probably completely unnecessary, but it does work, selling the moment. Art-wise, though, this is Ditko's finest hour. Spider-Man steadfastly refusing to give in is quintessential Spider-Man, and his moment of triumph an absolutely stunning example of sequential comics art. The ending is typical Spider-Man. Yes, he's won, but at what cost? Its ambiguity is part of the reason it's so memorable. What's remarkable about this story, one of the best Spider-Man issues ever, is that the story has a lot of depth. Ditko and Lee touch upon themes of family loyalty, determination, and a dogmatic refusal to give up, even in the face of the ultimate hardship. Spider-Man has a literal weight on his shoulders, a metaphorical examination of the trials he's going through in life, and this literal example of feeling the weight of life crushing down on you, only to never give in, is central to Spider-Man's appeal as a character. It's both an important issue and a good one, and could actually be read as Ditko's full stop to the character he co-created. There was nowhere for Ditko to go after this that isn't a rehash of what has gone before. And certainly Ditko wouldn't top it. Amazing Spider-Man 47 is included not only because it's a single-issue story, but because it pretty much sums up the Spider-Man era as depicted by incoming artist John Romita. It's also a really good issue, which helps. The series fell into a rut after Steve Ditko left, and this succeeds because it breaks the staid formula of the past few stories. This is a personal story for Peter. Not only is there a real opportunity that Craven the Hunter, this issue's villain, will reawaken the Green Goblin side of Norman Osborn, but he's attacking a party with people that he cares about. The story essentially centres around Craven wanting money for being hired by Norman for a job earlier on in the run, a story we still to this day have never seen. Lee and Ramita also show they are gelling as a storytelling team, as the various characters are all dragged into the plot organically. 
Lee is at the top of his game dialogue-wise, and the Spider-Man Craven fight is chock full of typical Spider-Man Bond mots. This is also one of the most exciting fights since Romita took over, full of great moments and asides, with Craven even scoring a victory over our hero. It's amazing how many of these choices see Spider-Man not exactly lose, but not exactly win. This is a genuinely good issue, though. A great example of the new ensemble cast, the recurring plot lines, and it's the one where Romita really felt like he was settling in, finally escaping from Ditko's shadow. Even the ending is typically downbeat. This is an underrated gem, well worthy of inclusion. However, Amazing Spider-Man 50 is kind of here against my better judgement. Many believe this to be Lee and Romita's best issue together, but I feel it's somewhat overplayed, and even for Spider-Man, a tad overwrought. Yes, it features more than its first year of iconic imagery, and yes, it too has been homaged everywhere, but overall I felt this deserves inclusion for its effect and its importance, rather than the story, which is actually quite slight. This was the first time a superhero quit in such spectacular fashion, and this overused trope was still fresh at this point. Lee and Ramita do a good job of giving Peter a reason for calling it a day in the issue, but really... But really, this is over 45 issues in the making. Being Spider-Man has caused nothing but grief for Peter, so it's not a surprise that this long, bubbling idea would finally boil over. At the very least, it's a story that never fails to entertain, no matter how many times it's been homaged and ripped off over the years. As such, this is a chance to revisit Spider-Man as a character and ask why Peter still does this, and Ramita and Lee deliver the answer in fine style. Spectacular Spider-Man Magazine number 2 was a colour 58-page super-length sensation by Stan Lee, John Romita and Jim Mooney and a continuity nightmare. However, for a collection such as this, it's pretty perfect. Entitled The Goblin Lives, this slight but full-on story sees madman Norman Osborn recover his memory again and engage Peter in a deadly cat-and-mouse game using all the people in Peter's life, May, Gwen, Murray Jane and even his son Harry against Peter as pawns in Norman's personal vendetta. While the story lacks in depth, it makes up for in pure suspense. Honestly, the pacing of this one, the tightening of the screws as Norman messes around with Peter's head, the visual splendour as Ramita milks every ounce of tension out of the build-up is almost Hitchcockian in its intensity. The almost triple-length nature of the story allows for bigger, more expansive panels, full-page and double-page splashes, half-page panels, dream sequences, flashbacks, hallucinatory scenes. It's all here, including moments where it looks like the pencils have been reproduced exactly, so detailed is the line work. It's included in this collection, though, as a pretty decent, arguably the best, Green Goblin story of the era. The Goblin has to be included, as he reached the status of arch-enemy for Spider-Man. An elevated position I don't agree with, but it is what it is. The Goblin's debut is pretty dumb, and later Goblin stories tied in with the Crime Master arc and the mystery of his secret identity. The identity revealed, when it comes, is also not that great a story in and of itself. So this feels like a better choice. I did say at the top of the show I wouldn't let nostalgia get in the way, but the bottom line is, I just like it better than the other Green Goblin stories. So there you go. My picks for the best of the 60s collection. 
some obvious, some not, but all, I feel, great examples of who Peter Parker and Spider-Man are in their own way. What would you pick? What would be different? What would be the same? Well, you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and let me know. Next time, the 1970s. Thank you.